0: scriptures, Ruth chapter 1, Ruth chapter 1, we'll be reading the entire chapter this morning and uh, I trust that you took some time this week as you prepared your heart to receive the word this morning through message that you are getting more and more familiar with the work of Jesus Christ, the work of God through this, this humble home, the humble beginnings of our great Savior Jesus. The first humility of our Savior, Jesus Christ, was not in the manger in Bethlehem. Let me say that again so that you could hear it, that the humility of our Savior did not begin in, in a manger in Bethlehem. We are reminded of that frequently, but no better place than in the book of Ruth, where we find that Jesus' beginnings, that is, his human genealogy, begin in a very, very, through a very, very difficult situation, in a very unlikely way. This points not only to the sovereignty of God, but the gracious sovereignty of God, the powerful sovereignty of God, in which He manifests and He works all of His power for His glory and for our redemption. Follow along with me as we read in this book of Ruth in chapter 1, and we could very easily say this is the gospel of Ruth, just like it's a gospel of Luke and the gospel of Matthew, the gospel of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his family and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. And the name of his two sons were Malon and Kilon. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Malon and Kilion died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. May God bless the reading of this word among his people. Will you pray with me? Well, heavenly father again our eyes have not set their sights upon anything so holy and pure as we have now all this week for all around this world we have seen the grass wither and the flower fade but the word of the lord it stands forever because it is pure and it is by the faithful mouth of our great god and so we have set our hearts before you this morning We pray that the eyes and the ears of our hearts might behold wondrous things of your grace. And Father, I pray for the heart that may be hurting this morning like Naomi, that they might be encouraged and lifted up and filled up like you did, Naomi. And Father, for those who are far off from the hearing of the sound of your word and even the knowledge of your covenant, much like Ruth was, then Father, we pray this morning that that you would be faithful to call unto them that they might come into the house of plenty and find in you measureless grace. Father, we pray that you might do your wonderful work through the preaching of the word of God. Which you have ordained to change the hearts of men. And I submit myself to you as your servant. That I would faithfully proclaim everything that Jesus has commanded me to do. That the spirit also would be faithful to apply these things to our hearts. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. The title of the message this morning is God's faithfulness in our emptiness. It appears that in in this passage that Yahweh, which by the way is the the name Jehovah, which is indicated in our Bibles as the capital letters L-O-R-D. And when you see those in your Bible, that word in your Bible all capitalized, it is different than the other word Lord that does not have capital letters. It is signifying This covenant keeping faithfulness of God, the God of Israel, the one who formed the covenant and said he would until everlasting, unto everlasting, he would be faithful to himself firstly and to his people. And the name for that faithfulness of God is, in fact, Yahweh, or we call what we say Jehovah, indicated by the word Lord. And it seems that the Lord has returned his favor unto the area around Bethlehem. If not all of Israel, we do not know. And in this passage we see that Naomi will return to Bethlehem and set the stage for a potential, what we think is going to be the potential for a resolution of the crisis because we have been alarmed, we have been alerted to learn in the first five verses that there is a, a very dramatic situation unfolding in her life. Things really, as it were, don't, do not seem to be able to get much worse than how it is for Naomi. And so we feel primed and ready, even if we had not ever read this book, as if we had never read this book, we feel really ready to find out what is next for Naomi. Does it keep going down or does it get better? And the first five verses just saying it's really, really bad. And, and as we find out, the, the, the writer of this book says, but it gets better. So we find out that there is a potential for resolution. And, and as we know, it is, in, in fact, just an unthinkable and an impossible resolution from man's point of view. We find out that because of these, this situation, even because of the sinfulness of man, the unbelief of man, the faithlessness of a, of a family, we find that the Savior will come. And by the way, this is the theme of salvation for you and I, and that is while, God is, while we are unfaithful, God is faithful. And he remains faithful. He is still faithful to this day. And the focus in this passage this morning, in verses 6 through 22, really is on the conversation, the dialogue between Naomi and her daughters, and specifically, as it would turn out, between her and Ruth. But there are four times that Naomi pleads with her daughters that they would, that her daughters in law, that they would return back to their homes, return back to their mother's house, return back to their father's house. And return and find joy in being married once again. And verses eight and t- eight through ten, verse eleven, and verses twelve through fourteen, and verses fifteen through eighteen. Four different, very strong appeals from Naomi. Do not follow me. Go back and find joy in the home of your parents. As we follow this passage, we begin. We become introduced to a character of the namesake of the book, Ruth. Ruth emerges. As uh, not just a character, but she emerges in, in our sights here as a, a character that is unusual. And a character that has some measure of courage that we begin to learn about. We also recognize that Naomi is beginning to accept the permanence of God's sovereign dealing in her life. This morning, as before we get into the three points of our message, there are four points of divine grace that we need to see here as we move into this conversation with Naomi and her daughters-in-law. There are four elements of grace that were introduced to at the very beginning of this passage in verses 6 and 7. And that is, we begin with understanding that Naomi hears some really good news from her homeland. Now she is, as we have said, she is in a, in a land outside the territory of Israel and really geographically and spiritually so, as designed by the covenant of Jehovah, she is outside of the blessing of God. And so really the territory of Israel is a delineation, is a borderline literally between the blessing of God and the cursing of God so long as the people of Israel would be faithful to follow after him. But as we have seen, there is a famine in the land. And we have been alerted to the the, the famine is a consequence of the cursed of God and the covenant that he has made with his people. That is, if they would go whoring after other gods, if they would give their hearts over to idols, if they would pursue the gods of other of other lands, if they would be idolatrous and adulterous in their worship, there would be a famine on the land. And this is meant to signal to us the mention of, from this author In this book that there's a famine isn't just a natural circumstance. This is a very spiritual consequence for their unbelief and faithlessness. And by the way, it is very possible that you're here today and there are things in your life where God is moving against you because of your unbelief and your rebellion. That is a very possible reality in believers and unbelievers lives. There could be a famine in your land And God is drawing your attention to the fact that you are destitute, that you are barren, and that it isn't only the outward circumstances that are telling you this, but that they are merely a physical illustration of a spiritual reality. And often God does that. Often God uses physical illustrations to signal to us an inward reality. As such is the case here, uh, mentioned especially as we had uh, sought after last week in Deuteronomy and in Numbers where God said, when you depart from me, when you do not seek me with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind, a famine will come upon the land. And so too, Elimelech would leave this land instead of seeking repentance with God and he would move to a pagan country outside the boundaries of God's covenant. So when Naomi hears that there is, that there is a, a, a good thing happening to the land. Look in verse number 6. That the Lord had visited his people. And given them food. She hears this. This is. Has tones. Has sounds of it. Of, of gospel goodness. It is very good news. It isn't just that by chance some rain came into the land and barley sprouted out no this was a very direct act of god that the that the lord had visited his people he had visited his people and we know that the only way in which he would restore restore health and prosperity to the land would be if their hearts would turn to him so she's hearing really good news from her homeland. Secondly, another point of divine grace is that we hear what the news tells us about that Jehovah has intervened on behalf of his people, that he has been faithful, that when they returned to him, when they turned towards him in repentance and contrition and brokenness in heart and repenting of their sin and turning towards him, that he restored unto them everything that he said he would. And by the way, believer, this is true. God is faithful to his own word. The, the third sign of grace that we find in this is that there has been a, a, an object of his divine favor. That is, his people have received his favor. Notice again in verse number six that the Lord had visited his people. Notice this is a possessive pronoun here. These are his very special people. They are still his people. Listen even when it didn't look like they were His people, they were still His people. Even when they were praying to false gods, they were still His people. Even when everybody was doing right in their own eyes, they were still His people. Then fourthly, the fourth sign of His divine grace is obviously here that He has given them bread. He has given them food. And so these four signs introduce to us that there is a faithfulness of God that we're going to look at and follow and see how is this faithfulness of God in the land of Israel going to become evident or evident Evidence itself in a very personal way because we're given names here now. So the faithfulness of God is great and it is to all peoples, but also the faithfulness of God is to you and I. It is to particular people with names. And listen, put your name here in this book. God is faithful to you. God is faithful to you. Now, outside of the requirements of the canon, it is entirely possible, and let me just, if our imagination suggest this, that there, there could very well be a book written about your life here. And let me just correct that. There could very well be a book written about God's faithfulness in your life. And that's what this book is like. You see, this book isn't about Ruth. It's not about Naomi. It's not about Elimelech, and it's not about Israel, and it's not about food, and it's not about a pledge. It's about a faithful God. And the writer of this book is signaling to us that he is about ready to unfold for us just how wonderfully, graciously, and mercifully God has moved towards an individual, Ruth, we're through one person's life who will impact, in matter of fact, all of our lives here this morning. So number one, let's look at this. God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. We had already read this passage this morning in our meditation time this morning, but in 1 Timothy 2.13, the Apostle Paul reminds the faithful uh, son, uh, preacher uh, Timothy, he says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. For he cannot deny himself. Listen, as we begin to unpack what's taking place here, we recognize that God blesses, God turns towards those who repent. You see, the return of the Jehovah's favor is a response to those who are repenting. In Deuteronomy 7, 12-15, 11-13-15, remind us of God's covenant promise to the people. When you go astray, God prophesies to his people, I will not. God is nothing like us. He is entirely faithful. He stands untouched, unfazed, unflinching in opposition to our faithlessness. But particularly in this book, we're going to find, again, not just, not just a broad spectrum of people, but but we find that there is one who by name is faithful, Boaz. We're going to learn about him in the next chapter. But we're going to find about one man who, tell us the name of one person, who at least one person was repenting, one person was just, one person had sought after the Lord, and this was a man named Boaz. Now as Naomi in verses eight, verse number 8, look down at your Bibles, as she pleads with her daughters-in-law... <laughs> She says in verse number eight, Go return each of you to your mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you. That word kindly is a very familiar word for us in the Old Testament. It is, it is translated in, very, in many different ways. But it is the word that often is translated as mercy or steadfast love. It is the Hebrew word chesed. Chesed has more than one word in the English language to be translated into. It is the idea in this, in this verse here, in this translation, it says kindly. It is a term of endearment and commitment. So it isn't an impersonal kindness, okay? It is a, a term of endearment and commitment. It is a covenant faithfulness. It is the word mercy, but it can also mean the word grace. It is certainly the word kindness. And it is loyalty expressed through an act of devotion, especially in a covenant relationship. And Naomi knows that this Jehovah is a Jehovah full of hesed, and she desires. And her prayer in this moment is: is she's saying a prayer for these women. May May Jehovah deal with you in 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 terms of endearments, may he show faithfulness to you. This is her prayer for her daughters in law. Now, the question is: Will Naomi seek after that same kindness for herself? She seems familiar with mercy. she knows there 's the theory of mercy. she knows there's the God of mercy. But will she pursue this mercy in her life? We know that God's has said his mercy, his steadfast love, his kindness is bigger than our failures. And Naomi's speech then in verses 11 through 14 is the longest in the book. And at least two more times she will tell her daughters-in-law similar things about returning back to their parents. She has come to believe that her heartache, that her bitterness, is greater than these women's heartache and bitterness. She has become frustrated with Jehovah, who she believes has worked against her purposes and against certainly her dreams. And let me ask you, do you feel that she is justified in feeling these things? Have you ever felt justified? Have you ever felt frustrated with how God has worked contrary to your plans? Where God has cut short your dreams? What has your response been? Is Naomi's anything unlike the natural human experience of suffering, of loss? She, at one point in verse 13, even feels not only has God brought an end to things, but that God has actually positioned himself as her enemy. That he is on the other side of the line from her, working entirely against her in every way. She has come to believe that she is not merely the victim of adverse. Circumstances that would happen by chance, but she has come to believe that she is a victim of Jehovah's Violence. She feels hurt by God. In in common words, in juvenile words, God hurt her feelings. And not to diminish in any way that, that out of the naivety of those words, but she is deeply wounded by the dealings of God. She recognizes this isn't just life. And chance that has happened, but that God has dealt harshly with her. And she accuses God of an injustice towards her. We recognize that in Naomi, her faith is not as mature or biblical as we might like to think. Like in verse number 15, look in verse 15, and she says, See, your sister in law has gone back to her people and her gods, return after. Your sister-in-law, we see this, that she is, she is betraying here, that, that it's okay. My God might not be the one you want to follow. I'm not sure I want to follow Him now either. It's not very mature. It's not very refined. And often God does deal with us in, in the messiness of our faith. Often God is not afraid to touch us where He knows we are weak. God does not reserve trials for our faith for when we are strong. God knows where to meet us right where we are in the middle of the unbelief, in the middle of the faithlessness of our journey of faith. And as I say that, I'm terrified to say that as a reality. And Naomi doesn't have her acts together. She's not, if you would say, worthy. Her faith doesn't measure up to the proportion of this test. It's more than she can take. She's devastated. And everything's just raw. It's just coming out in her conversation with these women. This is, this is how I am. This is how I view God. we need to settle on this and and if anything this book shows us this in God's dealing with Naomi and that is this the largeness the greatness the bigness of God's chesed of God's mercy of his faithful covenant love is not dependent listen upon how big your faith is It is independent upon how mature your faith is. God's greatness, God's mercy, God's willingness to come to you and help you and secure you and restore you is not dependent on whether or not you are a mature believer or not. Praise be to Him. Because we sit in a company that all of us are undone when we look at how great our faith is in here. God's faithfulness is not dependent upon our faithfulness. And God is faithful to Naomi even when she believes he's not being faithful to Naomi. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't say, okay then, I'll just be the kind of God you want me to be or you believe me to be? If you think I'm not faithful, I'll show you not faithful. The Word of God here reveals to us that the bigness of God's chesed is not dependent upon how mature our faith is. As a matter of fact, Naomi might even serve as sort of a stereotype or a a prototype or a a, a symbol to us of of what the rest of Israel was like since there was a famine in the land. If their faith was like hers, it's no wonder that they were dwelling under the curse of the covenant. But secondly, not only is God faithful even when we are faithless, but secondly, God does not limit the blessings of His grace for those who seem most likely. And, And in some ways, there is something that rubs our conscience this morning, this, it, it, as we sit here and we think, in some ways, I think many of us, if all of us were honest, we might even think that if anybody's worthy of at least some grace, it might be us. And this morning, a lot of times, we, we have the temptation of thinking that we, we deserve better, that we deserve something better, that we deserve at least this, Because, and then we follow it up, because, Lord, look what I have done for you. Or look what I have not done. I'm, I'm not that bad of a person, so I deserve this. And we have this sort of scale. But the fact is that God does not limit the blessings of His grace for those who seem most likely. And this really ought to undo us in this way. You see, God is determined, as this book reveals, to establish the messianic line through the family of David. That's what God is up to. And there are none that will be beyond the reach of God's grace. There will be none that are beyond the reach of God's grace to be entered into His covenant's blessings. Listen, at one time, it appeared like you and I were were far beyond the reaches of God's grace by human merit. And there are none who are are outside the reach of God's grace, not even the barren, not even the widow, and not even the pagan Moabite. And notice that all three of these combine into, to characterize Ruth. She is a widow and she is barren and she is a Moabite. All of those things, all of those things become answered in this book. But with a gospel purpose. So God does not limit his blessings to those who just seem, you know, likely the fact is that we find here that Ruth, as we study her and hear what she has to say, we recognize that she likely has an imperfect view of Jehovah. She has been around her mother-in-law for some ten years now at least, and she has no doubt heard about this this God of Israel, and she has seen how the God of Israel has dealt with Naomi, and Elimelech, and now she hears the theology of Naomi, what Naomi feels to be true about her God, and and the fact is that Ruth, as Ruth hears her only messenger, her only missionary of who Jehovah is, surely we all have to agree that she must be hearing a really imperfect theology of Jehovah. And Naomi even is bidding her daughter's-in-law. Don't follow me back to my the land of my God. Ruth seems to do something that we don't anticipate her doing. She seems to stand up here and take charge of the moment. By the way, let me park on that just for a moment. If people were to paint a picture about your God based upon how you live and what you say, what kind of God would they come up with? Because Naomi was painting a picture for Jehovah, and by all from what we can tell, by all human rationale, Ruth should not have followed this type of God that Naomi was declaring him to be. But let me come around the backside and say, but does not God say, I reserve the privilege, I reserve the rights to say who I am, and even when your theology is dumpster worthy, it will not prevent me from reaching into the heart of someone who's barren and a widow and a Moabite. Ruth was committed to not only sharing the experience of the grief that she had with Naomi in the past, but whatever lay in store for her for the future, surely she saw that this wasn't going to be an easy life going back to Israel. Now as a widow, now as someone who is barren, She was likely motivated by not thinking it was going to be any better with Naomi. As a matter of fact, as you hear her pledge to Naomi, it seems that she's just willing to go to the grave if that's what the end is. That's what it seems like in her heart is the likely end to all of this. Ruth, we find, leaves every bit of her security behind. She leaves her native homeland She leaves her own people, her own family. And she actually here leaves her gods. And she changes her loyalty, at least at the very beginning here, from an outward outward testimony, her loyalty from Shemash to Jehovah. We do not know how much she knew about Jehovah, but whatever she seemed to know, as we alluded to before, seems to at least have been a tinted or a shaded theology, certainly imperfect from Naomi's lips. So it's really the beginning of a surprising journey that we find here with this woman named Ruth. We're a little surprised to find that she, she with everything that's been given to us, that she would follow Naomi in this way. One um, Just to give you the idea of who Chemosh or Chemosh is according to as an Old Testament God. This is from a Bible encyclopedia in this way. There's an inscription found on an ancient ruin that uh, seems similar to, um, this author says, to how Israel would describe their own God, Jehovah. And he says, we cannot fail to notice the lack of the higher moral and spiritual elements supplied to the religion of Israel by the prophets. And he said, it is indeed evident that there was a difference between Yahweh, how Jehovah dealt with the Israelites, and the the description given of Chemosh. For Yahweh, as the inscription betrays, shows that he is a God full of grace and long suffering and leads even the erring back to himself. But Kimosh chastises with his indignation and accepts only horrible propitiatory gifts. Israel, by contrast, their God is appeased with the offering of a pure and obedient heart. The Kemosh was only pleased with with cannibalistic bloody sacrifices. As a matter of fact, in order to appease for the sins a father underneath the rule and the, the god Kemosh, a father would sometimes need to sacrifice his own son to appease the requirements of the religion. This is the religion that Ruth had been following. Now by contrast, she's going to learn of this Jehovah of Israel, we're not sure again all of what she knew, but she was about ready, I believe, to be very surprised that this God, well, as it would turn out, this God, instead of demanding your son, would demand his son for your sake. so Ruth gives an oath here, and it has several covenant type language, almost like a pledge, and often this uh, some of the language used in here is, is so beautiful and so typical of, of such a loyal covenant that is used in the purposes of a wedding vow i know parts of this were used in in our wedding vow 23 years ago and it is uh, a beautiful uh, form of allegiance sadly as a as a matter of cultural note this oath is also read by those who have other views and unbiblical views of what marriage is and what um what a relationship is as a heterosexual relationship. And they find this to be actual grounds for almost an incestuous homosexual relationship in this book. Be, be alarmed, be alert to that, that this is seen as that so often, so many other passages are twisted in this way. And this is seen as proof of this covenant loyalty of a marriage-like relationship between Ruth and Naomi, as disgusting as it sounds, from a righteous perspective, we can see all the elements of a redeemed relationship here, especially even one that improves. And so Naomi, Naomi acquiesces to this pledge. And now we see what the project is that God is up to. Now as Ruth turns to go with Naomi and Naomi acquiesces, we recognize that God is about to do something very wonderful. And this woman, Naomi, as she's suffering, seems to have some sort of, like someone opened the window on a hot day to bring in some relief. Here, this woman who has borne incredible suffering, now, as she enters into Jerusalem, even though Ruth is with her, she identifies herself as Mara. Now, the name Naomi means pleasance. It means a refreshing place. It means the idea of the goodness and kindness of God. It comes from actually the root of the Hebrew word that identifies God as being the supply of being the one who is sufficient, that you would have no emptiness. And now in this book, we have seen, all we have seen of Naomi is that she has become empty. And now as she returns back into Bethlehem, she says, no longer call me that which one who is full, that one who is well supplied. Call me the one who is now barren and empty and bitterly so. And so call me Mara. She was full when she left Bethlehem 10 years ago and now she returns to the full house of bread, empty. The irony couldn't be more stunning and God has placed us here for us All to consider that this woman who is empty, this woman who is a widow, this woman who is barren, she is entirely empty. She is bankrupt of everything. And now we even see that not only is externally empty, but on the inside she feels very empty. She is spiritually bankrupt. And there's nothing she can stuff in there to fill that hole. There's nothing that she could put in there to to satisfy the hunger of her heart. She can return to the house of bread in the time of plenty, but it's not going to meet the needs of her heart. So too is the lost person. So too is the person outside of God's covenant of grace. They can fill their life up with experiences. They can fill their mouth up with food. And they can fill their bank account up with money. But they will never ever even touch the beginning of the emptiness of their soul. And maybe this describes you when you hear this this morning. Maybe you're grasping after everything else that is all outside and you think if circumstances could just work out this way and sometimes they might by God's mercy. And it's sometime, and, and if, if I could just get this and if I could have this and if this could be restored unto me and sometimes even by God's mercy, God is kind to those who are far off like He was Ruth and He could be kind to you in the same way. But the fact is that it won't even begin to touch the hunger and the need of your soul, for you are totally bankrupt when it comes to the righteousness required to have a relationship with God. And so because of her suffering, Naomi feels like a very different person. And isn't that the truth? Don't often in our suffering we feel like a very different person. Maybe on the end of something climactic that's taken place and now things have changed so dramatically in our life and we just feel like, I almost feel like I should have a different name. And the townspeople even ask this. Notice in verse number 19, the question is really phrased in the Hebrew in the emphasis of this way. It's like this, Surely this isn't Naomi. Naomi. Because they don't recognize her. I mean, they recognize her facial features, you know, and that sort of thing. But they recognize where—where where is your life? Where's your husband? Where's your sons? Where's, where's your grandchildren? Surely this isn't the one who left. This is someone different. And it's almost as if she agrees. I am not Naomi. You don't know me. You don't know this version of me. I am different because of my suffering. And truly, Naomi's suffering was a suffering in her suffering. And we suffer in our suffering, don't we? Because often in our unbelief, we suffer in our suffering. Because often in our faithlessness, we suffer in our suffering. And our suffering is often more complicated than just the physical, the material world. And Naomi charges God in the third person, and she says to them, Look in verse number 20, For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. This is a very impersonal and, by the way, a third person reference to God. It's almost as if to say, I don't know that I want to have anything to do with this God. I'm just telling you who He is and what He's done. And she doesn't believe that the decisions of His counsel were good in any way and that she is blessed in any way whatsoever. And by the way, who would? Who would look upon Naomi's wife and say God is good? We can't fault her for looking for the good and the death of her husband and sons and the suffering that would ensue. We as believers of the word of God need to be rational and real when we read the word of God and recognize that it is very difficult and it is honestly Um, very much impossible to see the good of God sometimes from our human vantage point. And God has the answer for her accusations, but she won't have the answer yet. The same Almighty God will soon demonstrate his hesed to Naomi in a way that she would have never imagined in her wildest dreams. And then to a world... In an absolute and most remarkable way. And by the way, all suffering for the believer does have an answer. And you're waiting for me to say it's in time to come. But often it does not seem to be in the now, but it is most absolutely and definitely in the now. Even though Naomi was pitting herself against Jehovah, Jehovah wasn't having anything of it. God was not against Naomi. And he's not against you and I in our suffering. He's not against the child of God. And so the answer to suffering is in the now. Not just in the future when he unveils and says, Here's what I've done, here's why I've done it. But it's in the now too. God is on our side. In a slight way we may see a sign that Naomi acknowledges that what they had done by the moving to Moab was wrong. We might see her at least we we, we, we might see a suggestion we shouldn't have ever left here. Because God has dealt with us very harshly. She was realizing that they had stepped outside the covenant to get what they wanted, and they paid dearly for it. But thirdly, I want us to look this morning at what the purpose of God's commands are. Why would God keep a family who was just seeking after food? They were seeking after welfare, wives in Moab. Why why couldn't they just leave Bethlehem? Why 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 was it such a big deal to God that they that they wouldn't that that they would obey his word and stay and remain during this time of famine and drought? Well, Psalm one nineteen, I encourage you to turn there. Please turn with me to Psalm one nineteen and the Psalmist reminds us of the wisdom of God's commands. But not only does he remind us of the wisdom of God's commands and the faithfulness of his testimonies, but in this blessed psalm, this wonderful psalm, the psalmist alerts us to and actually uses as a foundation of praise the goodness, the pleasantness of God's commands. Now so often we hear that 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 is That that God's commands are good and it rubs us the wrong way. We would rather not think of His commands as good because they seem to be so limiting to us. They seem to constrain us from what we really want to do. They seem to hold us back from our own liberty and our own pleasure. But listen to how the psalmist describes the goodness and pleasantness of God's commands. Beginning in verse 14. In the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. In verse 33. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Do you delight in the commandments of God? Verse 67, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. Before you are good and you do good, teach me your statutes. Teach me more of your law, God. Teach me more of your desire. Tell me more about your will for me. I want to do it before I was going my own way and I was ruining my life. But I have found your commands and they have become a delight, he says. In verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. And listen, that is a truthism right there. If God's law is not our delight, we will perish in affliction. It is an absolute truth. Verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Do you love the Word of God? Even when God is... Telling you what to do that runs contrary to what you want to do? Do you love the Word of God in such a way? Look in 103 and 104. How sweet are your words to my taste? Sweeter than the honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. 127. Therefore, I love your... What's the next word? Say it out loud. Commandments. I love your commandments. Are you serious? Above gold. 161. Princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. I rejoice at your word like one who finds great spoil. I hate and abhor falsehood, but I love your law. Seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. Great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. My soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. I keep your precepts and testimonies for all my ways are before you. Then the psalmist, he he just, he just puts this nice little capstone at the end in Psalm 119, 176, the very last one. He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. And notice there's a prayer here. Seek after me, seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. And let me ask you this, was God seeking after Naomi? She had not forgotten his commandments. She knew his commandments. And she knew they had willingly stepped outside the bounds to pursue something other than delighting in the law of God. And she was afflicted. And God was seeking after Naomi. Naomi admits the inevitability of suffering when you go outside the bounds of God's commands. And they arrive in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley season, probably by the way, on the calendar around late April to midway, mid-May. And upon her return, her bitterness is expressed in such a way that it suggests a stark contrast. She, in this passage, does not appear to have renewed joy like the townspeople do. God has done a work in the heart of the people in Bethlehem. They have turned their heart back to the Lord. And God has responded in His faithfulness And bless them with bountiful harvest. And these women are excited. There seems to be a joy. And her Mara-ness stands in stark contrast to this. And they are, if if you would say it this way, they are being a testimony to her as they welcome her and receive her back with joy. There has been a new heart in them. She's empty and she's still searching She's searching for fullness and bread from other than God Himself. And so we see a contrast. We see a contrast not only between Naomi and the women of the town and the people of the town that we're going to be introduced to, but we also see a contrast between Naomi and Ruth, even the beginning signs of something happening in Ruth's heart. But Ruth is willing to turn away from her Moabite gods and approach Jehovah. But Naomi is only willing to physically turn towards Jehovah and is not ready yet for a spiritual change. Naomi is still a lot like Israel. Naomi is a lot like Israel because, remember, this book belongs in the middle of our book of Judges. When Israel is on a cycle of of repentance and renewal and blessing and then apathy, and then idolatry, and then repentance, and renewal, and blessing, and then apathy, and idolatry. Naomi was in that cycle too. Naomi is a real person, and and we see in this a great inner conflict, in the struggles and turmoil of the real world. Naomi does not appear to us to be spiritually sensitive, and doesn't resort to religious cliches to explain away her inner anguish. she's just being real And folks that is absolutely essential if we are to seek healing in our suffering to to be genuine to be honest to use real words and real expressions to not resort to just Christian cliches. Like one that comes to mind. Well, I know that God won't give me anything bigger than I can handle. How did that happen for Naomi? We need to be careful, but in the moment, our hearts just need to be broken. You see, religious cliches will never really explain away inner anguish, and we need to know that. We also, in this, can see some some point of rejoicing, and that is, we are glad to see that Naomi remembers Jehovah's name. Remembering God's name is the beginning of repentance. And obedience while Naomi was unfaithful Jehovah remained faithful even though Naomi's theology her belief and her understanding of God had need of much growth God did not abandon her because her theology was deficient She didn't use acceptable spiritual cliches and excuse away the hard things of her life that faith was demanding of her. And in this part of the story, we see no hint. In this part of the story, we don't see from the narrator's point of view any hint that Jehovah is about ready to move towards her in kindness. We only hear her outbursts of anger towards him. I also appreciate in this that the narrator, the writer in this, doesn't sanitize, clean up to make it look like it's really okay that Naomi is this way. He doesn't sanitize Naomi's accusations. And he doesn't pretend that everything is okay when everything is really upside down. Instead, Instead, we find, as the narrator presses us through this story, we find, we find that Jehovah will pick her up from among the ashes of her grief and amidst the ashes of her un, unfaithfulness. And he will make her, if you will, the godmother of the great-grandfather of Israel's greatest son and later God's son, the Messiah. You see, the hope for all who struggle with faith, and I think we all do. And the hope for all who struggle with unbelief, and I think at times we all do. And the hope for all who struggle with despair, and I think at times, especially seasons of incredible loss and suffering, we all may. The hope for all of these situations, The hope for all of this lies in that God does not wait to answer us in our prayers, our agonizing prayers until we are perfect. God does not wait to answer us until we have the perfectly expressed prayer. God does not wait until we are perfect, but when He chooses to engage with us in grace, He does so for a great big mission inside of us. And usually also through us in the world around us. Let's pray.